On Sunday nights, I have been teaching through things that are just the deeper truths of the scripture. The premise of that teaching is that so many times when problems come, we cry to the Lord and say, God, I don't know what to do. This is the trouble. This is the situation. This is how bad it is. And I don't know what to do. One of the reasons why we come to that moment is simply because we don't have the foundation to stand on. We don't have that truth that's inside of us that we can draw from. All we're left with is, God, I don't know what to do. So we've been on Sunday nights teaching some of these deeper things that if we can build that foundation, then in those moments of question or the moments of fear or uncertainty, doubt, whatever it might be, or just confusion, we might have something to reach down and grab because it's now become a part of our understanding. So we've been sharing those deeper things of the scripture. Go with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. There's been a lot of things offered about why God established the church. When you look at church today and you look across the spectrum of all the many things that churches are doing, we understand that there's a great deal of confusion about this answer. Why did God do what he did? Why did God send Jesus? Why did God sacrifice his son? Why is the tomb empty? Why did he send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? What difference does all of that make? What was the purpose of each of those pieces? What did he want to set in motion? To truly understand all of this, you have to go back to why we're here. You have to go back to the reality that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse says, and the earth was dark and void and formless. If we'll take just a moment, slow down and read that carefully. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go to my workshop, those things are going to be a reflection of me. Whether I'm neat or sloppy, organized or disorganized, they're coming straight out of my heart and they're a reflection of me. So if God's going to create, in that first sentence, God creates, created the heavens and the earth, what's that earth going to look like? It's going to look like him. It came straight out of his nature. So there's a disconnect in that for me to think that here's what it says. God created the heavens and the earth, and that earth was dark and void and formless. Can't make that make sense. Well, that word was in that first scripture. If you look at it in Hebrew, it's the word became. And the earth became dark and void and formless, speaking that there was an event. Something happened. Something brought that darkness. Something brought that void. Something brought that formlessness. You look in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, and about verse 22. There's a warning from the prophet Jeremiah that says, If you don't repent, if you don't turn away from your sin, if you don't turn away from the author of that sin, then what's going to happen to your land is it's going to become void and dark and formless. Exact same words. So we began to get this picture and this understanding. What was the event? that brought the darkness, brought the formless, and brought the void. Two passages, both one of them is in Isaiah, the other one is in Ezekiel, that when Satan rebelled, when Lucifer rebelled against God, he wanted to be as God, he wanted to sit on the throne of God, he wanted to replace God, and God cast him out of heaven in that moment. And it says, he cast him to the ground. That Hebrew word is the word earth, E-R-T-Z, earth. When he kicked him out of heaven, he, ki- he cast him to the earth. And there's a battle that's been raging ever since between God and Lucifer, now corrupted, whose name is Satan. 
We were put here as a part of the plan for redeeming this earth back to its rightful owner, whose name is Jesus. We began to understand that our vacation Bible school answer about why we were here to have fellowship with God doesn't seem robust enough to explain this great story. To explain why he would sacrifice his son, would explain why he would allow him to die, that he would be raised from the dead, and that 40 or 50 days later he would give the Holy Spirit. It's not robust enough to say he did all that so that we could have fellowship with him. He did all that because it was a purpose for the church. And I saw something in this study this time that I'd never seen before, and it surprised me. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 8. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, explains the purpose of the church. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Here it is. To the intent, for the purpose, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of the church is to be a witness to powers and principalities of his manifold wisdom, of his power, of his authority, of his goodness, of his love, of his kindness, of his healing, of his forgiveness, so that the church was put here under the power that he gave us to demonstrate to those powers and principalities who he truly is. So there would be no question. But here's the odd part. Who are those powers and principalities and why in the world would he want by the church to give this great demonstration? I have always taught that those powers and principalities are the same ones he mentions in Ephesians 5 and 6. You know, when he says we don't wage war against each other, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in dark places. But you notice this one doesn't say in dark places. The church is by its design created to be the supernatural reality of God, the evidence of God on this earth. That's why Jesus came, to show us how to live as evidence of what God will do on this earth if we'll let him. And by the church, we are not only supposed to show those angels that are in this heavenly realm, that are in this battle, we're not only supposed to show those bad ones, we're supposed to be a demonstration to God's angels of what this relationship is like. Both angels, good and bad, are, are watching are looking at the church and its magnificence. And I wonder, what, when they look at it, what do they see? God says, I put you here to demonstrate this great mystery. We know what it is. Colossians 1 tells us this great mystery. It's Christ in me. It's Jesus Christ, who by the work of the Holy Spirit has chosen to live in us. What an unusual reality. Not so that we can go about trying to be good or do good. He never once asked us, please lock this away somewhere. There's never a place in the New Testament where he asked us to do anything for him. You won't find it in there. Never once does he ask us to do anything for him. But pulpit after pulpit, the pastors say, the purpose of the church is to do those things for Christ. That phrase isn't even in there. If it is, it's in there eight times. Never once does it say for us to do something for him. But 150 times it says we are in him. In him we live. In him we breathe. In him we have our being. We are so designed as a church to be this demonstration. 
this is something that the church has lost. We were designed to be magnificent. We were designed to be the splendor of heaven. We were designed to be the mighty authority walking on the face of this earth that would bring the gates of hell shaking before us, trembling and falling before us. That's who he made us to be. We've lost the reality that he called us to be magnificent because we don't understand that it takes the magnificent one living in us to create that magnificence. The one whose name is Splendor living in us to create that splendor. Because we're busy. Our hands are busy, our feet are busy, and we're wearing ourselves out for God, and he never asked us to do it. He said, I want you to live in me. In him we have our life. In him we have our being. That's our message. The church was never supposed to be routine. Things in here were never supposed to be redundant. Things in here were supposed to be in obedience to God. Whatever he showed us today, that's what we do. That's what we sing. That's what we teach. That's what we preach. Under the authority and the anointing of God by the church. So that the angels can see it. Why do they need to see it? I can tell you very specifically why the bad ones need to see it. Because they need to see the plan by which God is working to their demise. We are the evidence of their punishment. We're the evidence of their penalty. They know where they're going. We're the assurance and the message to them on a constant basis that your fate has been sealed. We know where you're going. Why would God want the angelic host to look at us? What would be the purpose? Look at this scripture. This is an odd one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, just one verse. It says, Unto whom it was revealed that now unto themselves, but unto us that did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Let me read that again. Paul writing... Or Peter writing says, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister these things, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel, or preached the good news, unto which the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desired to look into. Why would the angels desire to look into that? Because the angels don't have what we have. God so created us with a physical body, with a soul and with a spirit, a creature has never been created like us. This is the uniqueness of creation in Genesis chapter 1, is that we were made in his likeness. The first being that was ever made in his likeness. I have a body, I have a soul, my mind and my emotions, and I have a spirit. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that spirit died. They still had a functioning body. They still had a functioning mind. They still had, a, had functioning emotions. But what sin caused was the separation that their spirit became dead until Jesus. And with the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that spirit comes back to life and suddenly something happens. In that live space now called our spirit, the spirit of God came to live. That's the uniqueness of who we are. That's that great mystery. The angels don't have the indwelling Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit who lives in them. They're functioning in obedience, but they don't have that internal voice. We were created in such uniqueness that there's never been anybody like us. A physical body and a mind and emotions that can now be, can respond to the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God has now taken up residence in my spirit. That's the reason that the angels would look. That's the reason that the angels would, would be bewildered by us. 
because we were designed to be such a mystery to them because the very God that they bow down to has chosen to come live in us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's reality. Jesus Christ came to live in us. He sent it by the form of the Holy Spirit so that these could become his hands to work with. These are his feet to go with. This is his mouth to speak with. These are his ears to hear with. He's the only one who's ever been qualified to stand in that pulpit. I'm not qualified. But the Christ who lives in me does a great job standing there. If you're not seeing him, it's time to check out. If you're not hearing truth that he's revealing, it's time to leave. I will leave. This is very much about recognizing the only person who's ever qualified to farm is named Jesus. The only person qualified to run a business is Jesus. He just chooses to do that through us. So that when the world looks at us, they don't see us trying to be good. They see the one whose name is good living through us. They don't see a a church trying to be kind. They see the one whose name is kindness living it through us. I shared something with a guy that meets with me on Wednesday afternoons and we looked at the scripture. I don't criticize the versions of the Bible. God will use a field and stream magazine to speak to you if he wants to. But one of the changes that happens in the text is that the word throughly has been removed and replaced with the word thoroughly and they're not at all the same words. The word throughly pictures us as a conduit by which the power of God enters this conduit and flows out into the world. I'm throughly furnished unto good works. Not thoroughly furnished, I'm throughly furnished. Him functioning through me to create his own image. That's a different gospel. That's a different message. And I tell you, it is one that truly, truly can liberate us. So how does God equip us? What happened? How do we become that evidence of God? Go with me to Matthew chapter 3. We're just going to look at this passage quickly because I've taught it so many times. What happened to Jesus at his baptism? And I know this, this, this may sound strange in a lot of ears, but baptism is not the outward evidence of an inward change. That's grossly reducing it to something that it is not. Jesus' baptism, a testimony, the baptism has such significance to it. Baptism has purpose and uniqueness. And it's not just random part of what we do. If we get around to it, baptism is critical in our understanding of salvation. Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, this is Jesus' baptism. Then came Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John wanted to forbid him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you. And you come to me, and Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It happened in the Jewish culture and it happened in the Roman culture that at a certain time of a young person's life in the Roman culture it was both men and women, boys and girls. In the Jewish culture it was just young men. But when they were little they were put under the care of governors and tutors to watch and to train. But always under the watchful eye of the father. The father was always watching, always looking, always making sure what was being taught, looking for one characteristic in these kids Because when he saw this characteristic, something dynamic was going to happen. We read this in Galatians chapter 4. Something dynamic. 
At that point, when they saw that quality, a father would take his own biological children, he would take them to the center of the town, it would be like us taking a child to the courthouse steps, and from those steps, adopting our own children, saying, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased because I saw this characteristic. I saw this quality, and I'll I'll explain that quality in just a minute. What would happen when they adopted them? They would take the child's outer cloak off that indicated that they were a child, and they would put an adult cloak on them. Immediately, there was evidence that this transition had changed because there was an outward sign. There would be that declaration by the father that this is my child, and I'm publicly adopting them on this day. Then this great thing would happen. The father would slip this ring on the child's finger. And that child then knew something. Whatever I press that ring into, when I press it into that clay, I have signed a contract that didn't bind me, it bound my father. My father had to honor that contract I just made. So what's the quality that the father was looking for? Obedience. He wanted to make sure that son never functioned outside of his will. That he would never bind him in something that was not according to the Father's purpose or the Father's plan. What was happening on this day of Jesus' baptism? His Father took him into the public arena and publicly adopted his Son. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And for the first time with absolute certainty, all question was erased in the mind of Jesus and the mind of anyone else as a witness that God was his Father. What do you think that did to Jesus, to the people around who heard this voice, who were accustomed to this practice? This wasn't a shock to them. They'd seen this hundreds, if not thousands of times when fathers would adopt their children. They heard this voice. They knew what was happening, that Jesus, having never performed a miracle, because we know what the first one was when he performed at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, that suddenly something dynamic happened here. And it also says that all of heaven was opened unto him. So Jesus knew from that point forward, for the next three and a half years, he was going to have access to the storehouse of heaven. That any time he needed love, he could reach into the abundance of it. Healing, he could reach into the abundance of it. Never coming from within himself. Always coming from the provision that had been made available to him. Every day, this was Jesus' life to reaching into the heavenly provision and handing it out and changing lives. And then that ring came says the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. It said in the other versions, in a bodily form. In John chapter 1, it says it descended on him and it remained there. You see, Jesus' equipping was just like ours. He had to have the Holy Spirit. He had to have that reality. And so he was sent to the wilderness, not so that he could understand what temptation was like. He was sent to the wilderness to make sure that he understood what it meant to function as the son of God and to be able to say that, that my father said and to realize that the Holy Spirit's voice was real and that his authority by that ring, by the Holy Spirit, he could speak the word of God and, the, and Satan had to listen. And I want to tell you, how did God plan for us to be magnificent He planned for us to receive everything that Jesus received when he was baptized. That I know that I'm a child of God and I can function under that authority. That I realize that I have been given the Holy Spirit so that I can bind the Father if I'm functioning according to his will. If I know his will, if I heard his voice, 
and I'm responding in obedience to what he says, he will be faithful to me every single time that I release whatever he told me to release, say whatever he told me to say, do whatever he told me to do in obedience, that every single time I would find him faithful and I have access to the storehouse of heaven. I never will minister from that pulpit out of me because you will know it immediately. It will sound empty and it will be void of truth. How did he plan for us to be magnificent? How did Jesus become magnificent? How did he become such a mystery to the world that they just couldn't even take in what he could do? His father adopted him as he adopts us. If you're a believer today, you are a child of God. And all that that means, you are a child of God, just as Jesus was a child of God, fully human, never less than God, but never more than man. He never once functioned at anything other than who you and I are, 100% man. He also knew where his storehouse was, and he knew the authority that he had. And he knew that when he came up against demons or disease or whatever it was, that he had an authority to speak by the release of his father in obedience to what he heard and what he saw. Luke chapter 17. We're going to see this demonstrated. Beginning with verse 11. It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers We stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's very interesting that these ten men were very united in their misery. Their common plot drew them together. As I was preparing this, studying this, I just went to the internet and I said, I want to know the lessons that misery teaches us. Because some of us are really good at it. Some of us have that kind of misery that just shows and persists and lasts a long time. It may not be you, because I don't see a single one in here that I would say, that's you. And I'm doing everything I can not to look at anybody. (laughs) But I found this little article about eight things that misery teaches us. It started like this. It was written by a lady named Barbara Winter, and it's entitled Eight Lessons That Perpetual Misery Can Teach Us. She says, I got to thinking about such people one day after encountering a miserable-looking woman as I was going out of the grocery store. I realized that she wasn't just having a bad day. This was a permanent state of being for her. I also concluded that the miserable among us are really experts at maintaining that stance. Here's what they do to keep themselves from wavering. One, they ignore or block out anything that might disturb their misery. This is turning selective awareness into an art form. Good news is not given a second glance. When good fortune does sneak in, turn lemonade into lemons and do it very quickly. Number two, plant yourself in in an environment that fosters misery. Bad relationships and dreadful jobs are great tools for keeping misery alive and well. The more insufferable the people around, the better. Number three, recant or retell stories of misery for everyone who will listen. No matter how long ago it happened, keep the pain alive. If there's no one to talk to, mentally go back to the horrors of years gone by. Repetition makes anything stronger. He's sounding pretty familiar. I know some people who I'm describing very well. Avoid new ideas. What the miserable already know is enough. Besides, new thoughts might cause confusion or even contradict cherished beliefs. Number five, stifle any impulse to laugh. This is especially important when in a group where others give in to laughter, let them know that you are not amused. Never empathize. Who laughed? 
Never empathize. If, if someone else wants to share their misery, just add it to your own bank of evidence, but don't get sucked into feeling sorry for them. And under no circumstances show any sympathy for the optimist that might slip into your world. Number seven, hoard. Do not offer com- compliments or any form of praise, and by all means, protect money and possessions from others. Sharing is only for idiots. And have a misery insurance policy. The most effective is to decide that whatever you have is not enough. This guarantees you'll remain miserable forever. Again, it's a little odd that there were 10 men in absolute misery because of the disease that they had who came in almost as a choir in unison before Jesus cried out, have mercy on us. All 10 of them, as close as they could probably be, saying with one voice to the Lord, have mercy on us. And then something interesting happens. Verse 14, And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourself unto the priest. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. Here's the odd part. Misery united them, but healing and restoration didn't. Misery brought them together when they were healed, when they were restored, when their lives were brought back to something normal, They were not united anymore. One came back and fell on his face before Jesus, and most of us would conclude that out of the ten, this one did exactly what was right. That this one did it the way we all should do it. This one came back and put himself before Jesus. This one came back and he praised Jesus and he thanked him for what he had done. And most of us, if I asked in a show of hands out of the ten, was he the one that got it right? Most people's hands would go up and say, yes, he got it right. But I want to tell you, I'd set you straight. I would tell you that you are wrong in your conclusion. And I'd be very quick about it. Because I'll not have you bashing the other nine. No, sir, they just worship differently. How many times have we heard that? The reason we don't raise our hands is because we just worship differently. I'm not like you. I don't have the freedom to do that. I'm not like you. I'll tell you what, we are fiercely protecting the rights of the other nine to walk away shocked that they didn't come back and we wonder how many of us if we had been in that other nine said that's just not the way i worship i'm just not like everybody else well i want to tell you we're united in misery so strange before god that we don't come in unity before him healed restored saved what we demand is that i get to do it my way I get to do it exactly the way I want to. I get to be before God exactly the way I want to be before God. And Jesus is saying, did I not heal 10? Did I not save all of you? Did I not die for all of you? Would that not put you on your knees knowing that I died for you? All of you. Wouldn't it be expected of Jesus that he would find us all in this unbelievable praise of him because of what he's done for us? No, you can't go there. You can't criticize me because I'm an individual before God. He knows that. But it sure doesn't stop him from asking, where are the other nine? He's, I don't know if he's shocked or not that they didn't come back and praise him. 
I think he's shocked that the ten who were united in misery didn't come back as ten to thank him. As united in their healing as they were in their misery. I guarantee you can find great unity in the misery even today. We can find it. Those people will congregate. It's amazing that we don't congregate together. You see, some of these nine were just not given to outward shows of praise or emotion. They were kind of personal and private people. Just because the one realized the power of his healing and the joy of his restoration doesn't mean that the others didn't feel it just as much as he did. They just didn't come back. Isn't it amazing? Dale Cain, when he was here as pastor, he used to use this Latin term. And he would say it over and over. When he would come to these kind of moments, he would simply say, this is the Latin term, bull. That's a bunch of bull. I believe God is wondering, did I not rescue everyone here? If you're a Christian, did I not rescue you? Did I not save you? Were you not transformed by my blood? Are you not alive and going to heaven because of me? Did I not deal with your sin and pay an extreme price for your freedom? Did I not do that? Why did they not return together? This is the big question because it's going to answer why we're not united today. Why did they not return together? Why were they not all there? Here's the reason. All ten of them received something. But only one of them was transformed. This passage in Matthew chapter 18, one that we know very well about the unmerciful servant who when the king was taking, looking at all of his accounts, he found somebody based on Jesus' parable that owed him millions and millions and millions of dollars. And the king ordered that this man be sold, his wife be sold, his children be sold, his property be sold to be paid against that debt. And a servant came and he Put himself before Jesus and said, have patience with me and I'll pay it all. And the king had mercy on him and pardoned and did away with that debt. And then this same servant goes out and finds a fellow servant, not his servant, one who had the same job that he did before the king. And he finds him and he owes him a few dollars. And this man uses exactly the same words to him and says, if you'll have patience, I'll pay you all. And he has no patience. He throws him into prison until he can pay the debt. And the king hears about it. He calls this first servant before him and says, what did you do? Did you not understand what I have done for you? What happened in that story? That first servant received something, but he didn't receive the heart of the king. You see, the first guy was talking to the king. The second one was just talking to a man. What should have happened? This man who received the forgiveness of so much should have taken on the heart of the king should have taken on the life of the king, should have taken on the patience and the virtue and the mercy of the king so that the second guy was talking to the king as well. But he wasn't because that man received something, but he was not transformed by the forgiveness that he received. All ten of them received something. Only one of them was touched and took on the heart of the one who did it. Why are we not united this morning? Because everyone sitting here received something. You receive forgiveness, you receive the pardon for your sins, but your lives, my life, wasn't transformed. Because if we were transformed, we would come back together, recognizing in unity and in unison what God has done. You see, they all received something. This one's life was changed. This one was transformed. Many of us have said before God, yes, God, I want to be saved. But our life was never transformed to be the child of God, the son of God, the daughter of God that he asked us to be. Yeah, I want to be forgiven. 
I want to make sure I end up someday in heaven. But I don't want my life to be transformed because I'm enjoying doing what I want to do. And as an individual, say, you have no right to tell me that I ought to be doing what you're doing. I don't have that right. But Jesus has an expectation. He makes it very clear. If we have been rescued by such a great price, why would we ever hesitate? Why would we think it odd to say to that God, I love you? Isn't it strange that this is so hard? It's odd, but in the Christian world, that we have paralysis that will not allow our arms to be raised before God in unison and say, God, you just amazed me. I cannot believe what you did for me. I cannot believe what you continue to do for me. I can't believe that you heal me, restore me, forgive me, love me, show me kindness and grace and mercy that I don't deserve. And I truly believe that God was, Jesus was amazed, not so much by the fact that they didn't come back and thank him. They didn't come back together. Misery had done it. Why wouldn't healing do it? And he said to this one, because you came back, because you not only received the healing, you were also transformed by your faith. You came back in recognition of who you are in relationship to who I am. He said to the last one, he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. I know it's a strange statement, but most Christians I know are not whole. Are they forgiven? Yes. Are they whole? Is Jesus their Lord? Is their life evidence that he's alive in you? Is it evident that the supernatural God who chose to live in you is releasing himself to the world every day? Is it evident that your life has been transformed? For many, the answer is no. Because I want my life to be saved. I want, I want to go to heaven. But God, don't bother me. I don't really have time for you. I'm a busy person. I have hobbies. I have interests. I have homework. I'm busy. I have work. I'll meet you again someday when it's my time to go home. Between here and here, I'll just do it the best I can. And Jesus is saying, if I saved you here, I'm going to save you here. I'll take you home. We're saved together. We go home together. He expects us to live together in unison and in unity we've been made whole complete saved and I think strangely we would collectively say this man was the one who got it right most gracious heavenly father you've come to tell us a story this morning you've come Lord to share a truth and to reveal things And I pray, Lord, this morning that you have found minds open, hearts open, spirits ready to receive truth. Because my suspicion is this morning that these things are coming against old thoughts and old beliefs. That these things are coming as questions with uncertainty. And Lord, we're grateful for the questions. We're grateful for the openness. But I pray, Lord, this morning if there is resistance to the unity that you're calling us to, Your prayer in John chapter 17, call the church to unity, to be one before you, to be one in you because you you indwell all of us. One Father, one God, one Spirit dwelling in all of us so that we can come in unity, so that we can be together united in in this great move as an army across this world, teaching and preaching and, and being the manifestation of your wisdom and power that you've taught us to be as the church.
Let us never approach the reality of who we are as a church with any expectation less than we are magnificent and that we are the splendor of heaven demonstrating before those heavenly beings this manifold wisdom of God that so made us to be body, soul, and spirit so that you could indwell us and show the magnificence of who you are. Let this truth sink deep in us. Let it transform us. Let us come together in this reality that you paid for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior.